All right, well, good morning. My name is Chris, one of the pastors here, and um, unlike Sam, I did not spend the week in Disneyland, so uh, I am not in probably as good a mood as he was while he was waiting in line for Splash Mountain. Uh, I was in traffic going to work in Seattle, so at the end, he got to go on a ride. I got to, you know, get my teeth kicked in at work, so that was awesome. Um, So thought about preaching Job or Ecclesiastes this morning, but instead we'll just go ahead and stick with what we have. So um, we are wrapping up our series uh, on the church that we've been doing for the last five weeks um, called Sacred Assembly. And during this series, we've talked about um, that the church is really the assembly of God's people from all nations and all time. And that it's the bride of Christ that's purchased by his blood. Uh, and, and that while the church uh, by nature is imperfect, that it's united with Christ. And so uh, if you're a Christian or you're someone that loves Jesus, we've said it's very difficult to say you love Jesus and not have some affection for his bride, the church. And we've talked about the Word of God, that the Word of God is um, his chosen instrument to create, to conform, to convict, and to convert um, his people. Um, We saw that Jesus preached, that he commands uh, his church to preach the gospel, and and that his word saves as people come to faith by hearing the proclamation of the truth about who Jesus is, who we are, and what he's done on our behalf. And then we spent a week talking about leadership and elders and pastors, and I know that was a real popular week for everyone, uh, where we found out that leadership and elders and pastors are an essential part of God's people. And it's a central part of his plan for his people. Um, And Jesus, ultimately, is the senior pastor of our church. That he's the one that plants churches, that grows churches, uh, and if necessary, closes churches. And that the Holy Spirit calls and equips qualified men to shepherd his people. And that if we're going to be a biblical church, that a leaderless church is really not an option. And then last week, Sam kind of talked about um, communion that it was instituted by Jesus to represent his broken body and his shed blood on our behalf, and that it should really be the pinnacle of every time we come together as a church to remember what he's done for us, that as genuine believers, collectively and individually, we get to remember his sacrifice. And today, I'm going to talk about baptism. And baptism is a public declaration of faith an active identification with Jesus. Sorry, this is really bugging me, probably bugging you guys too. Um, and we're going to see that baptism is an identification with Jesus, his death, his burial, his resurrection. And then we're going to specifically look at the role of baptism within the church, as well as why do we baptize people, who's to be baptized, what does baptism signify for individuals that are being baptized in the church as a whole. And probably at this point, some of you have likely tune me out because um, you're either a non-Christian or a Christian that hasn't been baptized and you're thinking, okay, great, this is a Trend West um, kind of free weekend where he's going to try to sell me on being baptized so that, um, you know, he can fill his quota uh, for the month. Um, I'm not paid on commission, so that's really not an issue. Um, And some of you probably have already been baptized and you're thinking, great, I'm going to take the Sunday off because I've been baptized so I don't have to hear any of this. But I hope that the person I brought with me who needs to be baptized is listening. And, and so you're probably thinking you're going to get some sort of referral bonus if they, you know, sign on or something like that. And, and it really just, it doesn't work that way. Um, and, and both are a mistake. And I think that um, as a church, we act as if baptism has great and tremendous importance, 
um, for new Christians and new believers, um, but it has, um, we don't see it as having any relevant implications for those of us that are mature Christians beyond our actual uh, conversion. And, and like I said, that's a- absolutely a mistake. And so, um, as I've been preparing for this message uh, and, and talking with a lot of folks about baptism, I, I found that there is so much confusion about what baptism is, what baptism means, why it's even important. I've talked to people that have been uh, Christians their whole lives and have been in church for um, you know, 20, 30, 40 years. And like, I don't even understand it. I don't even know why it's important. And, and I, I think that part of that comes from there's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of debate amongst Christians about the meaning of baptism, the mode of baptism, what its significance is. Um, and I think in an effort to avoid disagreements... Um, or actively study what the scripture teaches regarding baptism, we tend to just disengage from the topic altogether. And in doing so, I think that we, um, we're not taking baptism seriously enough. And I think that part of our misunderstanding of the importance of baptism comes in some levels from our misunderstanding of the importance of the gospel and what it means for, for us in our lives and what it means for the church. And um, it's so important for us to realize that Jesus only gives the church two sacraments uh, or, or ordinances for us to observe, communion and baptism. And that communion is that given at the Last Supper um, before Jesus' crucifixion as a regular rite of remembrance for his people, and that baptism is kind of a once and for all initiation into the church that Jesus gives to his disciples after his resurrection. So we're going to look at Jesus commissioning us to baptize. So if you would turn with me today, um, Matthew 28, 18 and 20, if you have your Bibles. If not, it should be up on the screen. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. This is after Jesus has uh, raised from the dead. He's talking to his disciples. It says, And he came to them and he said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. See, your Bible probably lists this section of Scripture as the Great Commission. Um, That's what it's been called historically. I think we like to treat it as if it's some sort of suggestion. Like, hey, this would be kind of a nice idea if you maybe thought about doing this. But it's absolutely a command. And, and so Jesus, he says these words last, not because they're any sort of afterthought. Like, oh, you know, like when I'm driving home, my wife calls me up and says, hey, can you get milk on the way home? I'm like, I've already been driving for two hours. I don't want to stop at the store and get milk. Um, but it's, it's important because he says this last because this is to be the guiding directive about um, the mission of God's people in the church is supposed to be about until he returns. So when we ask the question, why is baptism um, significant for the life of the church? The answer is simply because Jesus tells us it is. We baptize people out of an act of obedience to Jesus. And in this section of scripture, we see that the heart of how the church views and uses baptism is in some regards to be absolutely political And in other regards, is to be evangelistic. And those are two key aspects of the church that gets the rest of the world absolutely insane. They hate the idea of the church being political in any way. I'm not necessarily talking about elections here or anything like that. And they hate hearing about 
you know, why is it important for you to push your values of your God on me? But here we see that baptism is political and evangelistic. It's political, first and foremost, because when Jesus was alive and, and when he was walking in Jerusalem, Jerusalem was under the rule and reign of Rome. And that Rome, at that time, was the most powerful nation in history that the world had ever seen. And its defining symbol of its authority, of its ability to control other people, was the cross. It was the means that they would show other nations and people that they would be shamed and mocked and killed if they did anything to challenge the rule and reign of Caesar or the authority of Rome. And yet... Jesus, claiming to be God, humbly subjects himself to the absolute worst that Rome could do to him. And Rome beat him, they mocked him and they killed him, and they put him in a grave. And three days later, he rose again. With all of Rome's power and authority over the world, they were not strong enough to keep a dead carpenter in the grave. And so we have to see that Jesus rises and he comes back and he's victorious over Rome. He's victorious over death. He's like a victorious general and he comes to his disciples and he tells his disciples all authority in heaven and on earth is his. That his dominion and his authority is both universal for all people and it's comprehensive. And Caesar and Rome and everything that they represented and and all the power they have is brought to nothing compared to God's kingdom. And as the church, God's people, we don't place our hopes or our fears in elections or in leaders or in new laws or in some sort of political system. But as God's people, we recognize that our primary allegiance is not as citizens of this world, or even citizens of this country, or, or even Washington, or, uh, or Marysville, but that really, first and foremost, we're to be faithful subjects of Jesus and his kingdom beyond anything else. It's not compatible to be a citizen of this world and, and be a citizen of the kingdom. And one of the m- most famous and most feared leaders of the last century absolutely understood this. Adolf Hitler said, it is either a good, one is either a good German or one is a good Christian. It is impossible to be both at the same time, he says. See, baptism is political because we can't serve two masters. That you can either serve Rome or Jesus. You can either serve Hitler or Jesus. You could serve Mao or Jesus. You could serve Allah or you can serve Jesus. You can't serve both. And see, here today in America, we have, you know, what we like to call religious freedom. And so there are really few perceived cultural consequences for somebody going to church, being baptized, or becoming a Christian. There's just not a high cost. In any other time of the world, in any other location in the world, there's a huge difference between saying that you're part of that society and being a Christian. But here, I think the lines have been blurred so much that we confuse sometimes being a good Christian with being a good citizen. That many of us have wrongly confused the love of country or patriotism with the love of God. And 
regardless of how good or bad that you perceive this country to be, or its leaders to be, maybe you thought the leaders were awesome, and now you think the new leader is terrible, or you thought the old leader was terrible, and the new leader is great. It doesn't really matter, because in baptism, we are effectively renouncing our citizenship. And we are becoming patriots of a new kingdom. And we bow our knees in submission to Jesus as our Lord because he's our Savior. And we still live here. We're still ambassadors. We're still emissaries for that kingdom. But there is a dramatic difference. There is, there's a line that is crossed in baptism that can't be brought back. Now, some of you who have been baptized before are probably thinking, I didn't really understand that. I'd like to be unbaptized at this point. Um, you know, this is a bait and switch. And, and I apologize if anybody's taught you that. But we have to understand that even non-Christians understand baptism as being highly significant. Theologian Dan Reed talks about that in China, the Chinese non-Christians view baptism this way. They tell their sons and daughters that it's okay to worship or study the Bible with Christians. But whatever you do, don't get baptized. As non-believers, they recognize that to be baptized is to cross a river of no return. And he says that their perception is surprisingly biblical. Because baptism is a serious proposition. And yet, I don't think we see it as seriously as that. And so baptism's political, but it's absolutely evangelistic as well. That we're part of a kingdom that has a purpose and a mission to spread the gospel to the world. And we're commissioned by our king to be emissaries and ambassadors. That as Jesus says, to go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. See, where communion is for the church, um, it's for the covenant community of God who've been gathered together to remember Jesus. Baptism is more of a command to go and tell um, people that they need to be baptized. And that we're to baptize, it's a command to the church, sorry, to baptize people from every nation. And, and that's significant. That he says all nations is Absolutely significant because the Greek here, nations, is translated throughout the New Testament as, as Gentiles. And if, if you've been in church for a while, you kind of know a little bit of the dichotomy between Jews and Gentiles. But up until the time of Jesus, the assembly of God was limited to the nation of Israel. There were Jews who were God's chosen people that were identified by uh, birth of being in the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and those people were in. And then there was all of the non-Jewish people, and they were labeled unclean Gentiles, and were by their birth out of God's family. And so by Jesus telling his Jewish disciples to go to all the Gentile people and commanding them um, and the church to be... Um, preaching to them, he is telling the church to not be exclusively inwardly focused, but to have an orientation towards those people outside of the covenant community to bring them into the family of God in the name of Jesus. We're not supposed to be inwardly focused. We're supposed to be outwardly focused. At this point, worship of God is transformed from a passive come and see religion Come see our temple, come see our nation, come see our laws, come see our holiness. And through Jesus, it's transformed into a go-and-tell movement of God where Jesus says that we're to go to every corner in the world 
In Acts 1.8, he says, You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, Jewish areas, and Samaria, a Gentile area, and to the ends of the earth. And so here we are, 2,000 years later, we're in Marysville, Washington. This is about as far away from Jerusalem as you can get. And the reason that we're here worshiping Jesus, that we're here collected uh, and gathered as a sacred assembly of the church here in Marysville, is because for 2,000 years, God's disciples have been obedient to that commission to go to all the world and preach the gospel. And since Jesus hasn't returned, the work continues. And it continues with us. That if you're a Christian, you became one as a result of the church and God's people responding to that mission. And the same mission that saved you, that brought you to Jesus, is now the mission that you're called to, to go and bring other people to Jesus. See, we're enlisted as individuals and we serve together as the church, and we go and we spread the gospel of Jesus and his kingdom to the world. And we do it with confidence, because we know that Jesus says he's with us always, to the end of the age. See, we're not alone. We serve a risen God. We proclaim and tell others about a risen king. We plant churches because Jesus is alive. And we baptize new followers and citizens into his kingdom. See, there is not a big church planning movement right now for people to worship Caesar. And there's not a big church planning movement for people to worship Napoleon or Hitler or anybody else but Jesus. Because these men and the nations that they built are no longer. The nations and leaders rise and fall, but Jesus is alive and he will return. And until his return, he commissions the church to not just make converts of a new religion or, or to find people who would rather go to heaven instead of hell when they die, but to make disciples that identify with Jesus through baptism. And he says, teaching them to observe all that he commanded. So to understand baptism, we see that baptism is woven into conversion and salvation and discipleship as people are identifying with Jesus and become Christians and enter his church. And so Jesus gives the disciples the Great Commission. And if you look through uh, kind of a survey of the book of Acts uh, of all the uh, episodes of baptism, you'll see that as the disciples set out the work of building the church, that they preach the gospel and that people responded. And several distinct uh, but very interrelated events or changes happened to people when they became Christians. And I think we have to have an understanding of, of the holistic nature of what it really means to be a Christian. That in Acts we see that they preach the word of God. People hear and respond to the gospel. There is repentance. There is confession of belief in Jesus. There's forgiveness of sins. There's receiving the Holy Spirit, and there's baptism. And they're all tied together. And I don't want you to take my word for it. In fact, uh, we're just going to go ahead and go through the book of Acts here real quick. Um, the verses, I think, will be up there. And if not, you can write them down real quick. Peter preaches in Acts 2 to the collected people in Jerusalem. And after he preaches this sermon, they say, what should we do now? And Peter says to them in Acts 2.38, 
repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. See, repentance, baptism, forgiveness of sins, receiving Holy Spirit, all together. And so a few verses later, it says in, in uh, verse 41, So those who received his word, meaning they believed the gospel that Peter preached, were baptized. And they were added that day about 3,000 souls. That was a really good sermon. I mean, the church of God went from 120 people, held up in a room, scared to death, to a megachurch of 3,000 in the religious capital of the world. And it happened through people becoming Christians and being baptized. That is huge. Baptism is absolutely evangelistic. And later we see in, in Acts 8, 12 and 13, that Philip was preaching. And they said, but when they believed Philip as he preached the good news, preached the gospel about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus, they were baptized. And later in Acts 8, Philip is talking uh, in verses 35 and 36 to an Ethiopian eunuch, a guy who had come to Jerusalem, didn't know anything about Jesus, but he knew in the book of Isaiah that it said... Um, that there's salvation from a Savior that's coming. And so it says that Philip told him the good news about Jesus. And his response to hearing the gospel preached to him and shown to him in Scripture, his response is, what prevents me from being baptized? He wasn't trying to get sold on baptism. He wasn't trying to begrudgingly come to baptism. He wanted so much to identify with baptism. He says, there's water over here. Can I get baptized now? He's a Christian. He put his faith in Jesus, and he identifies with Jesus, and he says, I want to be baptized. And later in Acts 9, we see that Saul, after his experience of meeting Jesus on the Damascus road, um, is told, it says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came and sent me, so that you may regain your sight, and it says, and be filled with the Holy Spirit. It said immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes, he regained his sight, he rose and was baptized. Paul goes from a guy who's murdering Christians to a guy that's planting churches because he identifies with Jesus and he's baptized. A few other places. Acts 10, verse 47. Peter, again, he's preaching. He's preaching to some Gentiles at this point, I believe. He says, Peter declares, Can anyone withhold water from baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And it says he suggested. No, it says he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. I don't know what's going on here. I'm sorry, guys. It's not bad. Anyway, a few other verses. Acts 18.8 says the Corinthians heard Paul. They believed and were baptized. And Acts 22:16 says, And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized. Wash away your sins, calling on his name. See, I know it can be tedious to go through big sections of scripture there, but you have to know that, like we said, the word of God has the authority here in this church. And if I'm going to teach you anything, I have to show it to you in scripture. And so we see here in Acts that preaching and receiving the gospel, repentance and confession and belief in Jesus Christ, forgiveness of sins and the Holy Spirit, and baptism are all grafted into one another so closely that they can't be seen as unique or independent, unrelated spiritual activities. But they have to be seen as one holistic experience of transfer, uh, sorry, transformation, 
conversion and renewal. But see, we don't like to think of Christianity or spirituality like that. We don't like it to be an all-or-nothing proposition. We like to have it kind of be like a buffet or, or really what I prefer, like a custom burrito place. Like you go to Chipotle or Qdoba or Bojillo. I'll be at Bojillo in probably about three hours um, when I'm done here. Um, and you start at one end of the, of the aisle, and they give you your tortilla, and uh, they, you, know, you go through, yes, I want this, no, I don't want that. And so we're, we're kind of going along here with our spirituality. We're like, yeah, I'd like a double helping of forgiveness. That'd be really nice, so scoop that in. Repentance, no, go ahead and hold on that. Uh, maybe we don't, we don't want that. Um, Holy Spirit, okay, that sounds nice, but I, I just maybe in a, one of those little plastic cups so I can dip it on the side because uh, we don't want it to make too much of a mess. And then, and then we come to baptism at the end. We're like, you want to smother on some baptism on this thing? And we're like, I'm going to be driving, and I don't want to get this all over myself. So maybe next time when I can come in and sit down with the family and, and, and you know, on Tuesday when the kids eat free, um, that, <laughs> that maybe when I can sit down, then I'll, I'll go ahead and go for the full experience. But for now, it might be a little messy. And see, that was kind of my experience with becoming a Christian and with, and with baptism. I mean, I, you know, my, my parents always brought me to church when I was seven at some camp. They said, hey, anybody want to go to heaven or hell? I'm like, heaven sounds great. Okay, you're a Christian now. So that happened at seven. At, at 13, my, uh, my, we're at another a family camp now, and my dad had become a Christian. He got baptized. Uh, my sister got baptized, and they're like, hey, you want to go to heaven? You better get baptized. I'm like, well, mom and dad did it, and so did my sister, so I guess I'll do it too. And so I got baptized, supposedly. And uh, just ended up going on for about a decade of absolute sin and rebellion. Looked nothing like anything you'd see in, in, in Acts 2. And, and so later on I started hearing the gospel preached and I started realizing that I couldn't just have forgiveness without repentance. I couldn't have faith in Jesus without actually obedience to Jesus. And, and another pastor was getting ready to preach on baptism. We're at the Texas State Fair uh, together. I wasn't a pastor then. Um, and... Um, we're uh, chowing down on giant turkey legs and, and fried corn dogs and such. And, and uh, he says, yeah, I'm preaching on baptism tomorrow. I'm thinking, great, I get to take the Sunday off because I got baptized when I was 13. And he goes, dude, you, for a decade, you've just been an absolute, you know, crazy nut job. What makes you think that anything happened besides you getting wet on that day? And so I realized I got wet at 13. I didn't get baptized. And so I had to understand that, wow, the changes that were happening in my heart, the repentance um, I had, the, the Holy Spirit changing me, and baptism all needed to be tied together. And so he preaches a sermon on baptism. I'm like, I, I was not baptized. And that's not normative. Like, you don't see examples of the Bible of, oh, somebody was a Christian for a decade, didn't act like it, then got baptized a decade later. My experience is not normal. But it taught me that baptism is so important and so significant that I have to see, and we have to see, each event and experience of someone becoming a Christian as a strand in a tapestry that to remove one would painfully destroy or distort or damage the picture of what God reveals in Scripture it looks like for someone to become a disciple of Jesus. That it's not just about believing a set of facts. Or, or just giving a blind confession. It absolutely includes those things, but it's so much more. That being a Christian includes recognizing and grieving our sin. 
that there's something not right with us. Repenting and turning away from our old selves where we see that we're not citizens of the world, but we're actually slaves to the world and to sin. So we need to be redeemed from slavery and restored to a relationship with the Creator to truly have life. And Paul talks about that in Romans 6. If you turn with me, if you have your Bibles, Romans 6, go 1 through 8. He outlines how baptism is about our funeral and it's about our rebirth. Romans 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, by the glory of the Father we walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like this. We know that our old selves was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For if one who has died has been set free from sin, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. See, since our first parents, Adam and Eve, rejected the authority of God in their lives, the authority of God in the world, each generation since has been infected with a hereditary disease called sin. And by our birth, as sad as it may be, each one of us is defined by that sinful nature that is relentlessly working to destroy any sense of peace we have with ourselves, with others, and with God. And so we have to realize that no amount of striving or good deeds or karma or religious activities or even self-seeking pleasure is going to fix us or make us feel whole. That sin is absolutely part of who we are. That we aren't sinners because we sin, but we sin because we're a sinner. And that we realize that we are a sinner that needs to die because we are hopeless to fix ourselves. And in baptism, it's really our voluntary and public and joyful funeral. There's a, um, a country song on the, on the, that gets played on the radio sometimes uh, by Trace Atkins called Muddy Water. And, and in it, he's talking about getting baptized, of all things. And he says, there's a guy in me that has to drown. And I was like, wow, this is the most theology I've ever gotten from a country music station. Um, and, and I have to let you know, we don't get most of our theology from country music. So, uh, you know, you're not going to hear any sermons on, uh, I, I had some really bad titles, but I'll just let them be. So, um, don't listen to country music. Um, I listen to country music, but it's just not that good. All right. My wife's here just cringing. Okay. So, but we have to realize that in baptism, we declare our understanding that our body of sin and its power over us is nailed to the cross with Jesus. That our sinful nature in baptism is dead. And the water of baptism is a grave where our old self that is crucified with Christ is buried. And 
that as we're buried in baptism, we're saying to ourselves and to the church and to the world and to God, I don't want to be a slave to sin anymore. I don't want to be defined by who I am or what I've done or what's been done to me. The only thing I want to be identified with is who Jesus is and what he's done for me. And so the tomb of our sin and our old self is full. But Jesus' tomb is empty. And so we get to rise out of the water. We're not trapped down there. And we rise out as a new person with a new life, new desires, new hope, new joy. And as we identify with Jesus and his death on the cross, we identify with his resurrection as well so that we can live with a newness of life. Now, baptism, it's not mystical and it's not magical. And the act alone does not save you. But it's a sign and it's a symbol of our union with Christ. And so coming out of the water is like a married couple after they've been pronounced husband and wife walking down the aisle together. That they came in as, as, ind- as separate individuals, but they leave united a- a- as one person. So we're a new person that's not under sin from our birth, but is rather set free by our new birth through our faith in Jesus. And so we can have freedom from sin because God doesn't see our old selves as closed in, in sin, but he sees us as born again, clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. And so if God can see us as a new creation, if we're Christians living under grace, we can live with freedom as a new creation. That we can literally act as though the person that we were before is dead. I think there's a great example of this in church history. St. Augustine, um, before he was a Christian, was literally the Tiger Woods of philosophy. And I say that because he was awesome at philosophy, but he was also a huge, huge womanizer. And that's what he was known for. Awesome philosopher, huge womanizer. And he became a Christian. And he repented. And he said, no longer. And he lived in this newness of life, and, and, and so he's not defined by who he was, and he's walking down the street in a town um, that he was familiar with, and he's walking along, and this woman, this, this, this woman who was a prostitute, who he used to be a frequent client of, calls out to Augustine and says, Augustine, Augustine, come here, come be with me, I've missed you, and he ignores her, and he just walks on down the street, and so she gets up and chases him down the street. Augustine, Augustine, it is I, your lover, be with me. And finally, he stops and he turns around and he says, yes, it is you, but it is no longer I. And see, that's the perspective we have to have. That we are new creations. We're born again. There's a new identity we have. And it's not just for ourselves, but It's not just a new identity, but it's a new unity with God's people. Paul covers that in in Galatians 3, and this is the last section of Scripture we're going to cover here this morning. So Galatians 3, like I said, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Galatians 3, 26 and 28. You guys are turning there. I'm going to get some water. Galatians 3, 
Galatians 3. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, you put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. All one. See, Christianity, I mean, we've talked about this so much during this, this series. Christianity is never intended to be lived out alone. It's never intended to be separate from gospel community. That we're not independent spiritual free agents. But because to be separate would be to identify with sin. Sin separates. Sin separates people from themselves. It conflicts them. It separates people from each other. It separates them from relationship with God. And most importantly, as we see in our world, sin separates and isolates groups and individuals from each other. But the gospel brings people together to experience that fullness of life in new community, in the church. And so baptism is essential to the life of the church and its work because it takes us as weak, broken individuals and initiates us into the body of disciples united in the person and work of Jesus. The baptism tears down walls of sin that labels and separates us into narrow groups. So, race, religion, rich, poor, inside the reservation, outside the reservation, Republican, Democrat, single, married, urban, rural, young and old, gender, people that are educated, people that went to Washington State, those things are separate. We won four in a row. What do you want? Um, but, but all of those things, and, and that's probably the greatest example of it right there, all these things that distinguish us or identify us, they only lead to pride and envy. Because we think we're either better than somebody else or we wish we were as good as somebody else. And so... Those things have no place in the church. That that all worldly markers of our identity or the things that we think distinguish ourselves need to be brought under the lordship of Christ or they need to be cast aside. And that's difficult because all of a sudden now patriotism, party politics, pride, selfishness, they're all gone. And they're replaced with kingdom values of grace and humility and love and selflessness. See, we're united to Christ and each other through baptism. And our view of the world through baptism, through unity, becomes greater than ourselves and our own self-interest. Or even the self-interest of the self-selected groups we put ourselves into. And even the interests of our country. Through baptism as individuals and as a church, we look beyond ourselves to see the needs of the mission of the kingdom. And so, we're compelled to live radically different lives that look nothing like our old selves, but are energized by our new life. A new life that's powered by the Holy Spirit, with repentance and forgiveness of sin, and and that drives us to be fearless agents of the Great Commission, 
with the hopes of bringing others from death of sin to life in Christ. If we've been transformed by the gospel, if we identify with Christ, if we're disciples of Christ and his kingdom, if we're initiated into the church, the only choice we have is to joyfully be on the mission of the Great Commission. To go and make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Spirit. And so I'm going to close with, with, with a, a testimony here that this Great Commission is still being lived out. That There's a young gal uh, in our church, sweet gal, Donna. She's been a um, high school girl. She's been uh, serving in kids faithfully since the school year started. Like the biggest need we have in this church are people serving with the kids ministry because there's almost as many of them as there are um, us. And so she's been serving faithfully all school year. And, and her story of becoming a Christian, one of the greatest joys of getting to be a pastor um, the, the short time that I've been has been getting to hear stories of people becoming Christians and getting to actually participate in them being baptized. And so last summer, um, we had a, a, a gathering where we got uh, people that wanted to be baptized together to kind of share their testimony. And, uh, and her testimony touched me in particular, and so I asked her to kind of write it up and if I could share it with you. Um, and she did. And she said, When I grew up, or as I grew up, I was a Buddhist. My family and I believed that Buddha was my God and that he had the ability to take my life. And from what I've learned, the monks, from the monks and from my mom, was that karma's real and that everything you do to others will happen to you. But I didn't quite believe it. It didn't make sense to me because I thought if karma's real, shouldn't everyone be in the same spot? And the monks taught us that it was okay to have contacts with spirits or to go visit psychics. We practiced and believed so many sick things but I thought that all of them were good. Well, I was hanging out at, at school with my friend Jasmine, and she asked me if I worshipped Buddha. I told her I did, and friends, and, and for about a few months later, she introduced me to her dad, and he was asking me questions like, well, well, what do you believe? And I explained to him what I believed, and he started teaching me and pulling out verses from the Bible, and I learned so much that God sent Jesus to die on the cross to save us from our sins. And I tried to tell myself, because of the way I was raised, it's all a lie. But it didn't work. And then I learned that Satan's an accuser who's been trying to deceive me. And when I left, I wanted to learn more about who Jesus was. And so later I was given a Bible, and they brought me to church. And I continued to learn about Jesus. I continued to read the Bible and go to church. And my relationship with God grew. And after all the things I'd learned and all the changes that I'd been through... They asked me if I wanted to get baptized. I said yes, because Jesus did. And because I wanted to die with Jesus and come back alive with him. I was so excited. I love that she gives the date, August 23rd, 2009. The picnic, uh, we had an all-church picnic. Some of you were there, I think. Picnic and baptism day came, and I was baptized. And when I came up out of the water, I was happy. And I was happy even just watching other people get baptized. I remember this day, she says, like a birthday or like a wedding day. And she says, when I came home, my mom asked me if I'd had fun at the picnic. Well, before the picnic, I didn't tell her I was getting baptized because I knew she would have hated me and, and told me um, not to do it. And when I came home, I told her because I just didn't care anymore about her thoughts of me being a Christian. I love my mom, but I didn't want to be ashamed of being a Christian. My mom told my grandparents that 
I told her that me and my grandparents were disappointed, and I felt like crap telling them, but I was still happy. They just had to accept me. It took them a while, but it's all been worth it, she says. Every day my relationship grew in times where I felt as if God wasn't there, something really cool and amazing would happen. Like Jasmine would call me up and say something like, Donna, I just found a great verse. It says, if you feel absent from God, you need to pray, and God won't leave you. To this day, I'm still faithful, still learning, and still going through changes. It's a young gal here in our church. And I love this story. Because it, it makes it real. That it's a reminder that this call to make disciples and to baptize and the Great Commission isn't just some dead, abstract idea. And, it, and it's not something that's reserved for pastors or hyper-spiritual people. But it's alive and well in a high school girl telling her friend about Jesus. And, and, and a gal's dad who taught his daughter the Bible and, and taught another gal the Bible about who Jesus is, and who they are, and what he's done for them. See, for 2,000 years, God has used the church and baptism to spread his gospel from Jerusalem Marysville, to the ends of the earth, and even the next door with our classmates, with our neighbors, with our co-workers, with our friends and our family. This is the mission of the church. This is what we're supposed to be about. Making disciples. Baptizing people. It's something to be taken seriously as a responsibility for the believers and this joyous new birth of the new believers. And I'd be remiss to preach a sermon on baptism without giving you an opportunity to be baptized. Um, all I got is a water bottle this morning. We're not going to do it that way. Um, but in, in Easter, we're going to have a baptismal up here. During our service, we're going to baptize people that have become Christians since the last time we've done baptism. And that's, you know, what, four or five weeks away. The memories of this sermon will fade hopefully quickly in some regards. But undoubtedly, by the time you get to community group, you're going to forget three-quarters of what I said. Um, that's why we gave you the study guide. Um, but I want you to seriously consider not flippantly saying, yes, I want to be baptized out of some contrived emotional response, but I want you to pray and meditate about who Jesus is, who you are in response, and, and how you want to identify with him through baptism. And so in a couple weeks, before service, I'll get up and announce, hey, we're doing baptisms in Easter. And before that, we just want to get to meet you and get to know you a little bit and hear your story about how Jesus has changed your life. And my prayer for you is if you haven't been baptized or haven't understood what baptism means, that you listen to that announcement and remember that, yes, I don't want to be identified by my old self. I want to be identified with the newness of life in Christ and that you'd come baptized before your friends and your family, before the church, and before God. So I'm going to go ahead and pray. I'm going to pray to our God that has called us by the gospel into this sacred assembly called the church. And as a church, we're going to take communion as an ongoing reminder of Jesus' death on our behalf that we are initiated into in baptism. And we're going to give our tithes and our offerings, recognizing that our money and our resources and our possessions do not identify us, but that our identity is in Christ. Our resources are ours. The resources are the kingdom's. And then we're going to sing. 
we're actually going to stand up and sing with our voices praises to our king because we are citizens of his kingdom and that we recognize that through singing through our lives that we are ambassadors for him to this world that needs him. I'll pray. Father God, I thank you so much that I am not defined by the man I was or by my birth or by the sins I've committed or the sins that have been committed against me, but that through faith and repentance and the gospel and baptism that I'm identified with you, that when you see me, you see your son. All of our praise is to him. All of our lives are to be lived in response to him. We praise you by the power of your Holy Spirit. In the name of Jesus Christ.